Hey everyone, welcome to the Restoring Rapport podcast. My name is Seth Hensley and this is a podcast about reclaiming the place of priority relationship is providentially intended to hold in your life. You know, we live in a world where community is far too often pushed to the back burner in favor of less important things, but the good news is that it doesn't have to stay this way. As believers, we have the choice to prioritize connection in our life every day and to live face-to-face with God and people. In this show, I'll be number one, sharing research which supports the importance of relationship, number two, giving you tools to help you improve your interpersonal connections, and number three, sharing writings that I have done in the past on the importance of community. It is my sincere hope that the content presented in this podcast equips you to better serve and love others. To access my past and future articles, subscribe to my YouTube channel, or purchase a copy of my books, visit homeschoolerponderings.blogspot.com. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Restoring Rapport podcast. This is episode 19, and I've got a really, really special episode uh, planned out for you guys today. Before we get into it, thank you so much for choosing this show to listen to out of all that you could listen to today. Um, You know, a lot of people listen when they're in the car, when they're working out, when they're cleaning house, and you can listen to anything you want, music, audiobooks, other shows. We're really grateful that you chose this to listen to today. Um, on the show today, I have a guest speaker. His name is Jeremy Pryor. He is an author, um, a multi-generational team leader. Um, he's written uh, several books. One of them is called 31 Creative Ways to Transform Your Family. He's also got several coming out, um, The Father's Compass and Family Revision. And a lot of what Jeremy talks about um, through family teams is this idea that family as we know it today is kind of a failed experiment and it's looking to see what we need to change in order to prevent the train wreck that we're kind of headed for as a, as a country when it comes to family. So I've really, I've listened to Jeremy and Jeff for so many years now, and I really appreciate all that they do. They have several shows. The dad's building teams podcast is a great one. Um, the family teams podcast is another great one. Five minute fatherhood, great short little clip episodes for you guys to listen to. Um, and there's just so many good tips in there for preserving uh, family connection. Um, so as we get started, just thank you so much for being on the show, Jeremy. It's an honor to have you here. Thanks, Seth. Yeah, excited to be here. I love talking about this topic. Yeah, absolutely. Today, the subject that we're going to talk about is integrated living and the family structure of integrated living, because it's not really a common way of living today. I know that um, Jeremy, ha- Mr. Jeremy has a lot of experience Um well, first of all, uh, in his firsthand life, how he lives with his family, but also working with families who, who want to live a more integrated lifestyle than this, this nuclear family ideal that we have in the country today of mom, dad, two kids separated from grandparents, separated from extended family. Um, and maybe that we, we're just kind of on this show, we're asking maybe that's not the best way. And is there a better way? And what does that look like? So um, Jeremy, just before we get started, could you share just a little bit about yourself, kind of what your vision is, your mission is? Um, for those of you who don't know, Jeremy is the uh, co-founder of Family Teams, which is an organi- organization for directly for helping families. So can you just share a little bit about what your, your vision is for families today? Yeah, so we're trying to ask and answer a question I think that very few people ever ask, and that is, what is the family? Uh, this is something that almost everyone thinks that um, we know the answer to. It's it's obvious, right? I mean, we all we've grown up in families for the most part. We were a part of families, but one of the things that we can obviously see 
in our culture is that family is in crisis and that there's something fundamentally flawed in the structure. And so we've gone to come all the way back to first principles and said, okay, wait, 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 wait. do we really know what this is? And, uh, and so as we've asked that question, we're, you know, and really studied um, what the Bible has to say about family, we've come to conclusions that I, I guess are just not, not aligned totally with the way the Western world thinks about family. Yeah. Um, that there's a design underlying design that we're actually violating um, that, uh, that needs to be restored. And so family teams is just an organization that, you know, we're trying to get the word out. There's a biblical architecture for family that yeah. is being ignored. Um, and that is going to predictably um, lead to the kinds of problems and failures that we see rampant in our culture today. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, what's kind of the, how did you guys start? How did you guys go about starting this, this huge, I don't want to say huge in the sense of like, um, billion dollar corporation huge but huge in the sense of brand new vision because i say i really I focus on the family would be the most similar uh company that i've really seen to you guys and you're very different both of you do have kind of a different vision so how do you guys go about starting something that new yeah well i mean a big part of it is that i think there's a lot of people who are trying to strengthen the family as it currently exists mm-hmm. uh, we're trying to get the word out that there's a different architecture or a different yeah. sort of idea of family that the bible has it's not a springboard for individual success but it's a multi-generational team on mission and so yeah, a big part of what we're trying to do is is give people an understanding we're not trying to like solve every problem like uh mm-hmm. you know there's marriage enrichment there's parenting classes there's Lots of great tools that exist out there for families, but what we're doing is really unique. And so part of what's different about it is we're trying to, you know, use every, you know, kind of all the sort of technological means we have to just make people as aware as we can. Like a lot of this comes like, as I think about for myself personally, what would be at stake had I not been exposed to this idea of family, I would be so different as a father. and my my approach to my family would be so different and so I, that really causes me to have just a ton of energy just to like i want guys to know you know i want dads and moms and people that to be aware that yeah. there's just a huge difference in the way you can view family and that can really change you know how you how you design your family how you think about family how you practice family and so part of it's the biggest part is just getting the word out and then giving people you know some of the the, the first few tools for building this kind of a family. Yeah, that's great. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about on this show goes back to the idea that family is kind of the most basic building block of a society, of a culture. And if you really mess that up, you're not going to have a solid foundation and you're not going to have a solid structure yet. So that's great. Um, and just again, people are already going to be kind of listening now are already going to be very familiar with um, kind of your, your, what you say and everything, um, regarding family, because we've used you guys as a source so many times on the show, we just really appreciate your work. Um, what can you just explain though, in layman's terms, kind of what the difference is between the nuclear family that we've talked about, that's just kind of the mom, dad, um, a few children separated from extended family. Can you explain the difference between that and like a multi-generational family that you guys discuss at family teams where you're on a mission together? Um, and it's more broad. Yeah. So the Western idea of family uh, really is completely obsessed with the individuals as opposed to the group. And so, uh, so what we oftentimes see in our culture is a really good family is one in which uh, the individuals are successful. So if you were to talk to somebody and they're say, hey, you know, let's say somebody's in their 50s and their kids have grown and they're like, yeah, my, my son is, you know, I'm in this career and lives in this state and my daughter's got married and she's doing this. And then, you know, my other child, like, 
it's all it's all in all the stories are individual stories. Yeah. Um, and that's the way they think about what it means to build a good family. It's like, did, did we do a good job of launching? We even use these words, launching our kids. And once their kids are launched, we have an empty nest. Why? Because they're birds and they leave the nest. So, mm, yeah. um, so th- those are, that's the way we think of family. And, t- and we tend to break that down into like we, nu- the nuclear family tends to be the, the unit that is primary in, in that vision of family. Um, so that's one idea of family. The other idea is that the actual, the family was designed to be a team to work together. It doesn't mean that everyone's forced to do everything together, but it does mean that, that, that the actual design of the family is, is, is so that there, there are productive things that we're trying to do and accomplish as a team. Yeah. Um, and that's really what we see in, in God's heart when he made the first family, right? Mm-hmm. So he had a massive job that he describes in Genesis one, uh, to do. And so, when he launched the, the first family, created the first family, he made this family, uh, gave the family a mission. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule. Yeah. These were things that, that these responsibilities given to the family as a team. And the team had to be multi-generational because you can't, you know, uh, fill the earth and subdue it with uh, just Adam and Eve and a few kids. It needed to be a multi-generational family. So then it makes a lot of sense of, of why the roles of father, mother, son, daughter, grandfather, grandmother, you know, why the extended family exists, why the family roles exist, why the covenant is for life. Um, all of the different things that we take for granted that are a part of the families, uh, that sort of the, the different elements of family make a lot of sense. If the, if the family is a multi-generational team on mission, they don't make a lot of sense. If the, the, if the real vision of the family is just to be a springboard for the individual success, because yeah. of course, why not separate the family when our individual goals uh, begin to divide uh, the family? And yeah. of course, in our culture, we do. We do separate at that point because we don't really understand what, what would be the purpose of keeping this thing together if the goal of the vision of the, of the structure is, is for our individual success. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm currently enrolled at in a local college for an early childhood education degree. And that is a underlying theme in Gen Z, I believe, is get anything out of your way that's limiting you as an individual. And often a lot of those things I, we talk a lot about on the show about how not all limitations are bad. And family sometimes is that confine, that thing that keeps you stabled and um, structured to what truly really matters. And a lot of what you guys do is about that just thinking not just about yourself and not just about, you know, what you can, what you can achieve, what you can do, what you can grow in. It's about thinking, what can we do? Like right. shifting to but, the plural. And to what your, your point, like when you hear a message like that, like get, get rid of everything in your life that is getting in the way of you as an individual. Yeah. Um, nobody says that when you join a team, right? Like, like if you're a part of a football team or a basketball team, people don't say, Hey, if anyone in this team is getting in your way, get rid of them. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense. So right. there's a pre-existing question you have to ask, which this is, this is kind of the whole point. We don't ask this question, which is what is it? Because if it's, if it is just a group of individuals, then what you described is get rid of things that are getting in the way of your individual, individual success. That's a really good idea. Like if you're an individual and you're participating, let's say in a club, mm-hmm. you're not in a team or, you know, you, you join a school, um, then those aren't teams. And if they're actually hindering your individual success, go to a different school, quit the club. Like it doesn't make sense to keep sacrificing for this thing. 
Right. But of course, if you join a team and the whole premise of the team is that we're here, we only, we succeed together, then that's just not an appropriate question to ask from the very beginning. The question is, how do we, how do we function better as a team? How do we succeed as yeah. a team? How does, how do I, how do my individual skills and opportunity, how do they help further the team? Those become the questions oh, yeah. you ask. And so that's why we have to, there's a first order question we're not asking. And that is, is this a team or not? Um, and depending on your answer to that question, it will really change the way you respond to, you know, to how you, how you function as an individual with regards to that team. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's something that America needs to answer. Are we an individual? Because if so, we're doing a great job and are we a family? If so, we might need to change some things. Yeah, that's great. Um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's true. What, what are some of the reasons that families are opting for the convenience of this micro family structure today instead of, um, and they're kind of hitting the reset button every generation instead of developing, developing into these expansive dynasties. Why are we doing that? What's the, what's the appeal? What's the draw, do you think, in your opinion? Yeah. Well, I would say that it's, it's something that happens um, very naturally. Um, and we, we, it's not really a decision we made as much as it's something that kind of, it's a part of what happens when you have what sociologists call the, the assumption of stability. So you can imagine if you lived in a society in which, um, you know, every couple of years bandits would attack and, you know, you, there were diseases that were constantly coming through and wiping out half the tribe. And, you know, there was the potential for starvation and, um, and it's likely to, you know, likely to have a famine that's, you know, life threatening every 10 to 20 years. Everyone would live like a multi-generational family team on mission. Everyone you have to, that's a matter of survival. Mm. Um, because, you know, it'd be crazy to say, okay, well, we're all going to die, you know, if we separate, but let's separate, just see what, you know, like you can't think of yourself as an individual in a context in which there's that much danger. Um, but if you are in a society where you, you assume you're going to be fed, you assume all of these things are going to happen and they have happened for the last 50 or hundred years. And you think they're going to happen for the next 50 or hundred years. Well, then you start to think of yourself more as an individual. Why would I want to sacrifice for this? Because I can survive. And so the, the, the underlying reason why I would, you know, I would um, sublimate my desires and values for the sake of the group, um, they get disrupted because I don't need to sublimate those desires or values to survive. So what happens in that context is you have to have a bigger why to stay together. And mm-hmm. if you, and the problem with that is you have to construct that as a family. And if you don't, then it does make logical sense to, for this thing to fall apart and to break up into its individual atoms. They call it the atomization of culture. It's just you start, things start to fragment when there's not a gravitational pull at the center. And so you have to decide uh, if there's, if the gravitational pull isn't survival, like it, it has been for the last, you know, five, 10,000 years yeah. at least, then, then what is the gravitational pull? Right. And you have to then decide, is there a vision or mission? Does this team have a reason that is so strong and compelling that would cause us to continue to work together as a team and potentially sacrifice some of our individual desires um, for the sake of the group. And, and so that, I, I don't think that anybody should be forced to do that. I think that that is it. But, but the problem is we're not asking that question. And we don't understand that family was designed with that assumption in mind. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the assumption that, that we, we do believe that there's something that we're greater than the sum of our parts. That there's something great about working together across generations. Um, and to that it's that what I really want to encourage people to do is just even consider that and not, not necessarily to assume that, but to consider um, that if you're going to start a family, start having children or you're part of a family and you want to, you're building this, 
why not consider the, the idea of putting at the heart of, of your family a mission so compelling and important that it, would, it creates that gravitational pull that you get to function as a team because there's something so beautiful about that experience and what it does for each, each member of the family. Hi guys, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you about a few opportunities that you have as listeners to support this show. Number one, you can rate and review this podcast. Every rating and review I get helps promote my podcast on distribution sites. If you haven't already done so, it takes 30 seconds to leave a five-star rating and a written review. Number two, you can become a financial supporter of this podcast with a monthly contribution. Just scroll to the bottom of the show notes found in the description of each week's episode and click on the link labeled support this podcast. Many, many thanks to all my past and future supporters, and I hope you guys enjoy the rest of this episode oh absolutely i don't think there would be very many people at all who would argue that individuals themselves are stronger than a team i mean it's just kind of a common sense you know idea that teams are stronger and therefore they're more important so why don't we start acting more like a teams within our family instead of more like a um, collection of individuals all going different directions love that concept i also love how you pointed out that this is not something that we've actually chosen. It's something that we've stopped rowing and we've just kind of got carried along in the current to this place because of all the, um, the almost the industrialization and the way that our culture has made things so easy for the individual, so easy to um, kind of do your own thing and go at your own way. Um, you guys have talked about in the past the how it was more, how it was easier for multi multi-generational families in the era of agriculturalism because families were more focused on survival they were more focused on how are we going to put bread on the table in order to live versus now it's how are we going to get our uh, kids to college age and then have enough money for them to get a degree and then build their own you know individual success so can you how, how what are some of the ways that um the shift from agricultural agriculturalism to individualism have affected the family? Yeah. Well, you can imagine, so 75% of people lived on farms at the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, and before that, it was even greater. And this is just true for all of human history. The average person lived on a farm, lived on, mm-hmm. lived in a, in sort of a, a team in which every single member of the team was very valuable for the, for, for producing food, for producing income, for producing protection. Um, and so you, you, you had this culture of this team culture that was just sort of baked in um, to the way that, that, you know, that kind of agrarian culture was designed. And so, yeah, we haven't gotten over the industrial revolution yet, which, is, which was basically we're going to create these, you know, factories or corporations that, that act almost like factories. Mm-hmm. And then what it means to have a job or a career is to be a cog in that machine and to be a part of that team. And so what occurred was that people, uh, they, they lived their lives in and through their family teams just naturally. Their work integrated very naturally with their family life. And now work is disintegrated from family life. And so these two teams often compete with each other. Yeah. So when you're going off to work and you're joining a team at work to try to make a living and you're coming home to kind of rest and have some recreation before you go back to your, your team that you're you know, spending 40, 50 hours a week with, that kind of thing is going to have an impact on the family. Yeah. And it confuses the family greatly. It's like, well, are we a team? Like, do we need each other? We don't actually produce anything of value. Um, we just kind of recreate together. And so, mm. uh, so what you do is you start to just see the shrinking of the, the strength of the family, the purpose of the family, the roles of the family, the things that the family was just designed to do and be. And so you can imagine in that agrarian culture, you know, caring for elderly parents, it'd make a lot of sense. I mean, you know, we would, 
that we, we're all here doing different roles anyway. So one of the roles, you know, so everything's so integrated. Somebody's going to go off and, you know, plant some some crops today. Somebody's somebody else is going to take care of, you know, grandma and grandpa. Like it, it's like everything can be integrated in that in that way. Um, parenting was integrated with work as well. Um, and, and so, yeah, we, we don't know what to do in this post industrial world yeah. we live in. It's a very confusing situation. Yeah, for sure. Um, you guys covered in the five minute fatherhood podcast, one of my, actually it's one of the most profound episodes I've ever heard in any podcast series. And it's only seven, five or six, five or six minutes long, which is really impressive to me, but you guys read an article by Trevin wax and it was the article, a man's places in the home. And you talked about how, um, I'm going to read a quote from it here in a second, but it was basically how. In the agricultural world, your family, each each member is working as a team and the even the children and this each spouse are not impersonal employees like in a business, but they're actually um, bringing that family element to their their um, putting bread on the table. And that's something that I think we've kind of lost in today's world, because often the dad goes to work, the mom goes to work, the kids go to their work the public school. And it's like the home is just kind of sitting dormant while the individuals are out doing things and different things, not for the sake of the family, but for the sake of the individual. Like you said, it's almost like the, the, the team value has gotten lost and the new, new values of the industrialism have come in. So I love that you said that just really quick here. I'm going to read this article by um, Trevin Wax. He says, we may never be able to return en masse to the farms or workshops, but there is value to be had merely in mourning for what has been lost, which process reminds us of what might yet be. A man working his own fields was his own master, the sweat of whose brows was poured out directly, visibly in creating a home. His partner was not an impersonal investor, but flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. The subordinates along alongside whom he toiled were not querulous strangers, but were his own children, fruit of his loins. This is what has been lost in the two century long transformation of house as home into house as way station, that luxurious modern repository for food, a bed and distraction, barely inhabited by a loosely knit community of transients for the sake of which we shoulder a lifetime servitude to debt. And when I heard you guys read that article, I mean, he's, he's obviously a very good writer, but, um, my worldview was changed just in that one moment. It was almost like the, how, um, as a believer, I would describe the salvation experience of a moment. It was like um, the the scales fell off the eyes, you know, and it was like, there's something we're missing by separating and spending, you know, eight hour workdays apart from each other. And that's why I, I f- a lot of families have difficulty, um, you know, integrating to the point where they can sub- sustain themselves financially um, together without, you know, leaving each other all day. But, um, I know that it's possible. Can you give me some examples of, I know you guys as a family live a very integrated life. How, how have you kind of managed that in the financial world? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the really good news, uh, I think in this conversation is that it's actually, I think far easier, uh, in the economy where, where that's emerging to integrate family than it was 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. So like both of my grand grandpas worked for Ford their entire life, um, you know, and retired with pensions from Ford and there back then there were giant corporations that basically were providing, uh, families with their primary means. And there wasn't, it was very difficult to, to do entrepreneurial endeavors at that, at that, especially at scale. Um, it was very costly. Um, and there was a much more of a winner take all sort of industrial environment back then. 
um, when we were more of a manufacturing economy because you had to create such you know capital intensive mm-hmm. factories in order to to produce income and compete in the in the global market yeah um, now that's changing um there are so many different industries you can get involved in that are much smaller today mm-hmm. um in in our current economy and so like you know we're uh, we've started you know i think seven different businesses over the course of our family's life um we had you know uh, an e-commerce business for a long time i was so excited this is really back when Amazon first started, we started our first e-commerce business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just, there was such a proliferation of, of e-commerce businesses that they, they, unfortunately, a lot of us got stomped out by as Amazon went beyond books and right. got into everything else. Um, but man, it was an awesome season. That's where I learned a lot of the business things and there's still a huge opportunity within e-commerce. Yeah. Um, then we got into internet marketing and because there were just new uh, platforms that were, you know, pop- popping up, it felt like every, every couple months, um, that needed to be, you know, sort of reverse engineered and considered, and and we could offer, you know, basic marketing services for mm-hmm. for companies um, and make a living that way. And we did that for a number of years. Um, we we were involved for twelve years in in animated video production, um, which was another very easy to um, low barrier to entry opportunity for us to to produce, you know, creative um, um, videos for for lots of companies and for different movements. Um, and then we've, you know, we've gotten in, involved in real estate um, yeah. and we're, you know, we've taken some of our, uh, our earnings from other business models that were, you know, lot lower barrier to entry. And we've, and we've gotten involved in these more capital intensive opportunities like, you know, um, buying real estate um, that that's distressed and then, you know, um, rehabbing and renting those things. Um, my wife and daughter and my um, mother-in-law started a quilt shop, not the most, you know, profitable business model in the world, but it's like, we kind of are at a point now as a family where we can engage in, you know, some of these other business models as well yeah. um, that, you know, might not provide a full income for a family, but, um, but for us are yeah. very meaningful because they allow us to work together and, sure. and work with our community. And, and we found ways via online also to, to really increase the profitability and, and revenue of some of these businesses. So there are just so many opportunities now to, to do this, and so I think that's the good news and what, um, you know, Trevin Wax is describing there of, of lamenting what happened yeah. that, that we live in a day and age. People can choose lifestyle. There's a lifestyle design uh, choices. And so a lot of people going into college, they're asking, you know, what kind of career do I want as an individual? Mm-hmm. Man, I wish I wish people would say, OK, they'd ask a question before that. And that is, do I want to work with my family? Yeah. Do I want to work with my spouse? Do yeah. I want my kids as they're getting older to, to, to offer, offer opportunities for us to work together as a team, you know, when they want to, or when they launch off and start businesses or ministries or other initiatives that, that they would create things in which we could support them, work with them further, you know, the different assignments and callings and passions they have. So, so we, we, we're, this is really, we're really entering almost a golden era of mm-hmm. um, being able to, to get beyond, you know, either subsistence, subsistence farming that was happening, you know, for most of human history or, um, this kind of uh, time where you had to, you know, 95% of city dwellers had to just sort of, you know, involve themselves in a giant industrial economy they couldn't, couldn't you know, hope to have a piece of. Um, you know, we, we're, we're living in a day and age in which there's just so much technological disruption going on um, that you can find little pockets of the economy and make a good living and work as a team. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, one of the main questions that I asked myself upon entering college was, I would like a job that 
provides me the possibility to stay at home, spend the majority of my time at home with my family. And because of that, I chose teaching because summer's off and long weekends. However, even then you still leave the home for that, that eight hour period of the time. And I, ideally I would like to work exa- with my family, exactly how you're describing um, as a unit kind of moving together. Um, and it sounds like a lot of the, the ways you mentioned you guys had done that were possible because of the internet and the recent advances in like online um, marketing and things like that. One of my mentors has gotten into e-commerce through Amazon and she's, she's very successful at it. And um, it just, that kind of thing is a real inspiration to me just for the exact reason you pointed out um, that wasn't possible, you know, 70 years ago. So I'm really glad that first of all, technology can be a, um, an aid to the family. We, we talk a lot about today, how technology can uh, be a devastation to the family. You know, Jeff's written, uh, Jeff Pepke's written lots of books for you guys um, out there. One of them was um, Hell with the Hustle. He talked a lot about over um, the hyperconnectivity of the world today and how social media is causing us to see each other as less than human and these things. But there's also the flip side of that coin where we can, as families, use this technology to actually work together rather than separate in order to live. So I love that you pointed that out. Um, that's a great that's a great thing for our listeners to know. Can you briefly break down um, kind of the benefits of a multi-generational living that can't be replicated by a nuclear family? Because I, I know a lot of people would say, you know, my family, we have a nuclear family. It's great. I don't see any problems with it. What are some things that the, the multi-generational family has to offer that can't be replicated by the nuclear family? Yeah. Well, I think, I think that the generational wisdom is a huge, mm. um, a, a sense of roots that yeah. children will have. If you have generational connections, um, there is a crisis in our culture with young people of being, um, of identity, like not knowing who they are and being told you're just going to figure it out yourself. Good luck with that. You know, yeah. go find yourself and just wandering for a decade or, you know, like, or more, um, trying to figure like that, that is all a result of, of the decision to, to devalue our generational connections. Yeah. Um, those kinds of crises did not exist. Then of course you have just very practical things. Like there are, there are seasons of the family that are very physically demanding. And so to have extended family available to yeah. help you know, care for young children, um, you know, we're, we were famous for saying it takes a village or, and by that, of course, we mean, you know, daycare and nannies yeah. and right. lots and lots of, you know, and, and those things, you have to almost create a serving class of, of workers to be able to um, be able to sustain the, the challenge of, of raising a young family um, yeah. alone as a nuclear family. It's, it's really not, it's not designed for us to be able to do this by ourselves. Mm-hmm. So um, there's also just, you know, sometimes when we think about that, because many, if you're not somebody who's, you know, if you're starting this new in your generations um, you can, you know, there are some benefits you're not going to get that, that your future right. generations. Another example is, you know, imagine what it was like, you know, in these agrarian cultures in which, you know, people, uh, they paid off their hundred acres. It took them five generations. And so mm-hmm. there was enormous sacrifice made by the previous generations. Um, and then what, what's the benefit of living this way? Well, man, you get a hundred acres, you know, like yeah. work. And wow. now you, you can have some freedom as a family from the, from the dangers and subsistence of life. Yeah. And I think that could also be true today. Like, you know, what if we, what if our children were given the ability to, um, and there's, there's a problem of course going on right now in our economy, which is that young people are, are coming out of college an enormous amount of debt while yeah. wages are stagnant and housing prices are exploding. What a terrible situation. Yeah. Now, 
that, that, that if, if you expect every single generation to hit the reset button and be able to pay off that school debt and to, you know, take those low wages and to, to buy houses that are exploding in value, um, that's, that's a problem. But of course, if you're a part of a multi-generational family or you, you take the hit in your generation for your future children, you know, we can help each other get over these kinds of hurdles. We Absolutely. Can, yeah. So, so th- 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 there's so many ways in which this can, can help, uh, benefit. Um, but uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, you do have to take it. It takes a little bit of imagination because if you haven't seen it, um, yeah. uh, in, in play and seen the, the blessings that this can create, um, you might not, you might dis- dismiss the the amazing opportunities that this can create for your children and for your grandchildren. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, even setting aside those amazing financial benefits, I've noticed you, I've heard an interview in the past where you talked about the um, just the social benefit of it. Because for example, if there's a divorce in a nuclear family, that's kind of the end. I mean, the, the family's dissolved, basically. The kids are torn different directions. There's no support structure. Whereas if there's a, a death or a separation in a multi-generational home, there's hopefully another you know father figure or mother figure to stand in and fill the breach there. So I love that you guys have talked about that. And the in along with what you said about the financial benefits, um, in another interview, I heard you recommend the movie Avalon, which I recently watched Avalon, where it's a Jewish immigrant family who comes here and basically lives very integrated. And um, of course, by the end of the, the show, it did not go well for them. But by watching it, you can kind of see those pitfalls of that and kind of avoid those um, in the process of making your own multi-generational home. Um, so what's like, like, it's kind of like the lament. You just it it's is. Like a movie version of watching. Yeah. Um, a family that is that is so beautiful in its multi generational expression, but then gets just so disrupted by yeah. American culture that it falls apart towards the end. Yeah, it's a really yeah. cautionary tale for sure. It's great. They movie. even yeah, they even sat down in one of the scenes and had like a family business meeting and discussed finances. And you guys have talked about in the past how um, yeah, I mean, when you have this multi multi generational family, you've got you know, eight different incomes. I mean, cause you have so many, so many families in the home, just financially from a financial standpoint, that makes so much sense to, to combine um, and sacrifice that individualism, that autonomy, that independence for so much wealth when it comes to, you know, the collective whole. So I love that you guys, I think you guys said that you took all of that and bought privacy. So you, you have four kitchens and, but you still live integrated, but because of your, your collected finances, you can afford, um, to even buy privacy. So I love that you guys pointed that out because when I've presented the multi-generational home to families in the past, they've, one of their concerns has been, you know, I would still like to have my own introvert space, you know, my own place to withdraw. And um, so I love that you guys have done that. What's some practical advice that you would give for families who are trying to live this communal integrated lifestyle, but they're having some trouble just practically knowing what that looks like. Yeah. Well, I, def- I definitely think it's a critical to do it in stages and baby steps because it's not, sometimes what people do is they, they le- lurch to the end. They have a vision for total integration. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons why that could be very toxic as well. So you have to be realistic and take steps, you know, careful steps into integrating family members. And, um, and a lot of this does depend on, on if people are healthy and, um, and we, you, we've worked out really good ways of resolving conflict and we, mm-hmm. we find lots of alignment or not um, with regards to how we view family life or work or our spiritual life. And so what we do, ba- baby steps are, you know, you start with time. So you're like in your rhythm, how much overlap do you want to have 
you know, with your extended family. So, you know, in our case, we do a, a Sabbath dinner on Friday night. Um, and at first we didn't integrate anybody because we didn't know what we were doing. So we just tried, like, yeah. tried to just figure out if we could pull this off every week with our kids. And, but over time we would like once a month integrate, you know, um, like my wife's parents and once a month we integrate my parents and then it just got more and easier. And, and as, as and our relationships got, got healthier and healthier. And so we just took, so for a number of years, we were doing a weekly family meal together. Yeah. Um, and then we started integrating a couple more rhythms, you know, ministry rhythms, work rhythms. My dad worked for me for a number of years. My father-in-law worked for me, you know, like, so we, we got to know each other and we got to really enjoy each other and find that it wasn't toxic or, you know, problematic. If we did, we would have backed off, but, but once, but as more life and more, um, you know, it, more grace was kind of on those experiences, then we would take another step. And so we just kept taking the steps until it's like, you know, my parents now live here, you know, in our kind of our multi-generational house, yeah. my, my nephews um, live with us and lots of our rhythms are integrated. But even then we, we kind of do it one at a time. Like my mom, she cooks, you know, dinner for us on Tuesday night. We do, uh, my dad hosts a game night every Saturday night with, you know, all of his grandkids while April wow. and I do our game night. Um, you know, these are all things that we just tried one little step at a time. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's important to respect the relationship. The relationship is paramount. And it's right. really important. That vision does not uh, eclipse the relationship. Some people yes. are so obsessed with the vision that they'll actually harm the relationships. They'll get so disappointed with, you know, their children or their parents or wow. whoever yeah. they're trying to integrate with that. It's like, guys, the point is a deeper, is that those relationships, you have to be really thoughtful and careful in stewarding those and, and, you know, taking these steps, you know, taking three steps forward and two steps back. It's okay to retreat as well from, from things if they're, if, if, if it helps the relationship. So that's, yeah, that's kind of how we've tried to approach it. That's great. I mean, I mean, the name of this show, Restoring Rapport, that's exactly what we're about is keeping relationships central with God and other people and getting rid of things that impede that. So I love that you said even vision can do that. Even vision can be an impediment. Even vision can be a um, an obstacle to overcome. But um, not that vision is bad to have, but that vision you just have to watch it. Yeah, I love I love that. It's great. That's a great point. Um, a lot of times, you guys, I've heard you guys talk a lot about Jewish feasts and um, kind of the table as a portal to the kingdom. I know you talk a lot about that on the Family Teams website, which, by the way, we will put in the show notes for you guys to access all of the resources that they have available there. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that began and why you found the table to be um, a, a unique and special place when it comes to building a family bond? Yeah. Well, it is a big deal. I mean, in our culture, we talk mostly about the table with regards to like what I would just think of as the weekday dinner. We know mm -hmm. it's like, yeah. which I think is very important, but it's like, we got to have a place to catch up. You know, right. we're all going different directions. Kids are going to different schools, sports, right. work schedules. So let's have a place to kind of, you know, sync up. Um, but, but, you know, that's one way to think about the table, but there's also another experience, you know, which is what really healthy families experience like in our culture, maybe on a Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, which is, um, which is what it looks like when you have multi-generations around a table and you're just, you have the gift of time and you're just experiencing your familyness. Yeah. And we don't do that very often. And we learned this from Jewish culture because when we lived in Jerusalem, it was crazy how, you know, on Friday, uh, right before Shabbat, you would just see people just, you know, streaming into uh, their parents' houses, even if they were older with their young children. Um, and then all of a sudden the Shabbat siren would, would sound over Jerusalem. And if you listened really closely, you know, what you would hear 
was the chanting of fathers over their children, wow. you know, blessings. And I was like, Oh, like, I mean, that's, that's, that is a different kind of experience of family. And a lot of us oh, yeah. just don't know how to create peak family experiences, but that really is related to learning how to steward the table to experience uh, all the elements of the family. And so for us, we do that as well on a Friday night where it's, it's very timeless. Our experience we don't have anything planned. We're not rushing off to anything. You know, we, we bless our kids. The oldest father blesses the sons. The oldest mother blesses the daughters. Yeah. You know, we, and, and in that experience, you know, everyone at that table is a father, mother, son, or daughter. You are your family identity. Wow. And you, we live and play that out in the, in the context of that meal. Um, because we, we love that, those identities and we want to sink our roots deep into, into what, what, and, and at those meals, we tell family stories all the time. Um, my mom just, um, she worked for, for a week to, to build up this um, uh, slideshow about my grandpa who served in World War II. And, you know, and it, he would have been, I think, 104. And so right at the time of his birthday, he's been, you know, he's, he died, you know, over 20 years ago now. Um, you know, we, we read his poems. We shared his wow. stories. We watched the, you know, and our kids are like, really, tell us more. And, and I'm yeah, able yeah. to tell stories. My parents can tell stories. That's a, that's a very normal part of the way that we do uh, Shabbat. Uh, dinner on a Friday night. It's, it's a, it's a place for, of, of creating that kind of rooted structure for our, our kids and our future generations. Absolutely. I mean, that would make, I mean, I can, putting myself in that position, I can imagine that would make you feel like a part of something, you know, lasting, like a legacy, like you guys have talked about. Um, and that just for, just practically, I think of how the table is the perfect place to do that because I mean, eating is a basic human need. You can't really escape that. You have to make time to eat. It's not something that's optional. So um, you can basically take that time where you're doing something you have to and use it to um, invest in your most um, visceral relationships. I love that. Um, can you briefly describe the, actually, I want to give one more thought on that. I've heard, um, I've heard Jeff Bethke talk about um, table as a place where you actually see part of God's heart that you wouldn't see other places. He, he mentioned that verse, um, the road to Emmaus, where the two men are walking with Jesus and they have no idea who he is until the moment where bread was broken. And then they recognize him. I love that because I think there's something about um, satisfying that basic human need together that you can't actually, there's no other way to replicate that quality time, just like on a, you know, a walk in the park or something. I think there's something really special about the, the table for sure. It's where um, the story ends. Yeah. It's like you, you think about the culmination when the, in the Bible, they're trying to describe what the ultimate experience of relationship is going to be like. And, you know, in, at the end of revelation, it describes us being at a feast at a table. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's true. The marriage supper. Love it. That's so good. Especially because I feel like, I mean, today, a lot of times, you know, because of the, the, the differentiated workplaces, you know, you have the kids doing homework often in the evenings, you have the parents, you know, relaxing or watching TV in the evenings. And it's like that, that, that space is getting lost. But in reality, it's something so, so pivotal um, for family health. Um, I've also heard you guys uh, talk about something I briefly want to go over an annual family summit where you guys kind of do a collective um, review over the, the previous year and kind of where you're going in the future. Can you basically just go over that a little bit and what that looks like for families? Yeah. So for us, we like to do that right somewhere between Christmas and new year's. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, what we do is we schedule usually about a 24 hour, um, summit. We often for sometimes we'll stay home, but, um, in recent years, we usually get a hotel room, um, for us and our kids wow, and yeah. we spend, um, so we just had different exercises, you know, 
the first half of the summit, we look back. And so we have the kids like go kind of quarter by quarter or month by month. And like, what are some of the highs? What are, we have a bunch of questions that they can ask and answer about, you know, things that have happened over the, over the course of the last year um, and really kind of piece that together into the kind of the flow of the year for them. And then we, you know, have a really cool dinner. We usually eat out um, at, a, at a restaurant and then just go around and like spend two or three hours just letting the kids share and me and April um, on that reflection. And then, and then we, what we do is the next morning, um, there's, we do usually about three different sort of uh, segments, we go to different coffee shops and stuff where we have our kids write and share, write and share. So we just do wow. a lot of vision sharing, you know, goal setting, uh, rhythm tweaking, like a lot of those things. We just ask a lot of questions about like what's working, what's not working in the family. Um, you know, what, what, what do we want to double down on this year? What do we want to, you know, um, we want to kind of, uh, uh, let go of this year. Um, how do we feel about our family mission? Um, how do we feel about our values? So a lot of evaluating and, um, and a lot of, I do a lot of writing, uh, during those, during those summits. Um, and then we make some decisions about, you know, where we're headed. And sometimes we make, we've made some very, you know, big decisions about major rhythms or, and, and for us stewarding our weekly rhythm is there's nothing, you know, almost more, um, in terms of a big decision than that, if we, we're going to shift something that happens during the week, you know, we commit to that for the next 52 weeks. That's a lot of reps, um, right. of that activity or not doing that activity. So, so that, we, that gets a lot of our attention during our summits. Awesome. Yeah. Something I love about that particularly is that it gives everybody a job, something to do down to the smallest child, because a lot of what I'm learning about in, 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 um, the education system today, where I'm learning how to educate, K through three K through five at fifth grade actually is that when you give a child a job in the classroom that's specifically designed for them and that they were um, kind of assigned based on their personality and skill set, they feel like a part of something greater. And I just love how you're capturing that with this family summit. You're making all of the family feel like a part of a unit, a part of a whole. I love that you're um, doing that through those for the last couple of minutes of this interview. I just wanted to go over the, benefits uh, of marriage and family for men specifically, because 70% of this show's listeners are men. So I wanted to cover um, how basically multi-generational living affects um, men. And, and in particular, uh, one of the articles that you covered um, in an interview, it was another great interview that you, you and Jeff did, Mr. Jeff did. It was um, the nuclear family was a mistake. That article by David Brooks, I believe. And one of the quotes he has in there is that, um, ext quote, extended families provided men with the fortifying influences of male bonding and female companionship. Today, many American males spend the first 20 years of their life without a father and the next 15 without a spouse. And then he goes on to point out that, quote, in the absence of, of the connection and meaning that family provides, unmarried men are less healthy earn less and die sooner than married men. And I think that's something that men particularly need to know today, because a lot of the people that I'm being exposed to who are my age, early twenties, um, marriage really isn't on their radar, much less, um, integrated living. And so I'd just like to go over some of these, uh, the benefits that you believe, um, men would get specifically from having a family surrounding them at all times. Yeah. I would say the biggest one that, that David Brooks is describing and that you were talking about there is the collision between our culture's value for impulsive freedom versus yeah. meaning. That, okay. That's really the, the collision. So if <clears throat> what, what our culture has been telling men is that what freedom is, is the, the ability to at almost any moment 
indulge your impulsive desires. Okay, that, that is not freedom historically. Freedom uh, historically has, has been in most cultures and every religion is freedom from those impulsive desires mm. towards something that's much more meaningful. That's actually the real battle that men are waging. But, you know, you can create a much better consumer if you can define freedom as the ability to indulge your impulsive desires. I mean, that, that creates the perfect consumer. And wow. so we have been exposed to so many hundreds of thousands of advertisers. You know, it's just like we are, we are training men um, to think about freedom in this way. Yeah. And so, of course, children and marriage and mortgages and, oh, my gosh, what a drag. Wouldn't it be better to be able to just grab a beer at any moment with your buddies and, you know, not have to have any responsibility. And, you know, I mean, that 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 resonates with this very shallow idea of life that it is that it's, it's about that kind of impulsive freedom. And it's not about meaning. So historically, yeah. you know, if you grew up in a multi-generational family where you're hearing stories about your father and your grandfather and your great grand, and you're like, this responsibility, this family line has been given to me. So I, and I, I have to choose a spouse and, wow. you know, and, and basically I get to further, there's nothing more meaningful you know, besides your faith than that. And so it's like wow. getting to be a part of that. You're, if, if you're, if we're training men to pursue meaning and that happiness, deep happiness really comes from the experience of investing in meaningful things. Um, and that, that you need to find ways to, uh, to make sure that, that you are really free. And that is to, you're free to, to follow your best intentions and not your impulsive pleasures. Um, that, that, that's what men really, really want. And I think that, um, this is why, you know, we have this kind of trope in our culture that when you're on your deathbed, nobody says, you know, I wish I would have, um, you know, worked more or, you know, we say, no, you wish you would have spent more time with your family. Like, like we know that there's something really weird about the way we're thinking. Um, but we don't, you know, we don't know why it's so weird. And that's why I'm like, I'm trying to like, you know, sort of jackhammer into the root of that. And it's like, we believe a lie. It's a, it's very pernicious, wow. very yeah. pervasive. This lie is that, you know, men, you're, somebody gave, told me this, like when I was graduating from high school, somebody, you know, kind of, you know, grabbed me, you know, by the shoulder and said, Hey, Jeremy, just so you know, you know, you're about to go to college and like, those are going to be the best years of your life, man. Like enjoy every minute of it. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible thing to tell young men um, because the time when you have the least responsibility and the most freedom to indulge your, your, your impulses that is the best years of your life and everything's downhill from there. That is not the way the Bible describes the, the good life. That's why I love Psalm 128, which really describes the good life, which is may you live to see your children's children. May your, may your sons be like olive shoots around your table. May your wife be like a fruitful vine within your house. Thus is the man um, uh, who is blessed by the Lord. Wow. Yeah. That is a totally different picture of the good life then, you know, find a way to retire when you're 25 and, you know, indulge your hedonistic pleasures to your heart's content. Uh, that is not, but again, we, you, you, when you say it like that, a lot of people are like, well, yeah, I, I don't know if I believe that, but man, no, we actually do believe that. Um, because of how we're acting. Yeah. Our actions betray that that's what we really believe. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. It, particularly, I mean, men who live that way are kind of living a life devoid of purpose. They have, they're not part of something bigger. They're not. Um, and, you know, I would say that's reflected by I'm writing an article. Now I'm doing, I'm studying the, the health benefits of uh, choosing marriage over singleness and men in general just are so infinitely healthier than their unmarried peers when, when they're married. I mean, it's, it's, it's striking. And it's a part of that, um, 
the purpose in passing on that family name in sacrificing for meaning. I mean, it's yeah. like we need meaning. We actually, we think we have it. We don't, we don't, we don't have enough meaning in our lives as men, especially when you're, you're young, like yeah. you need, you need to pursue things that'll, that'll produce tremendous meaning and, and things that are meaningful are hard. Like they're going to require sacrifice. And so that, that's the message we have to be telling young men and that bearing up under that responsibility is a good thing. And you will, you will not regret it if you, if you choose to do that. But I think, I think that this kind of gets back to the structural problem with family. And that is that I think so many young men have seen families fall apart. They've watched their dad or their friends, parents, you know, their, their marriages fall apart, you know, and they look at that and they're like, well, if that's what's meaningful, then maybe I am better off as a single person Yeah. because look, look at the devastation of families. And that's why it's like, man, that the reason why that is so pernicious is because of, we, we have a, as a culture have adopted this wrong, this, this backwards architecture. We don't know how to build families. We don't know what family even really was designed to be. And so working against the design for 10, 20, 30 years and, and ha- watch it fall apart. You, if you do any, if you use anything or abuse anything, you know, in a wrong way for that long, it's going to fall apart. So we have to understand the underlying architecture of family so that you can, you can actually, you know, reliably invest your life in, in your family um, and know that it will result in, in, you know, much more likely to result in greater meaning. Um, we're all broken as families. There's always going to be struggles, but but for it to self-destruct so consistently, um, yeah. that is that is new and that is a big problem. Absolutely, and that's why I so appreciate the work you guys are doing at Family Teams and re re giving um, re crafting the vision for for family, redefining it. I love how you pointed out that. Um, products of a broken marriage of broken families will grow up to think that families and marriage are broken. That's because they come from that. So I love that you pointed that out. Um, remember guys to, I'm going to link the, uh, everything about family teams in the description. Something else that I wanted to point out that they do is the, um, the skill of fatherhood masterclass. It's a three part, um, system of how, basically how to be a good father. Um, you can register for that on their website. Also, they have a five minute fatherhood group that I'm part of, and I absolutely love to see the questions that pop up in there. It starts some really good discussions. And even on Instagram, they have, um, Jeremy's made a lot, Mr. Jeremy's made a lot of Instagram like books telling you, giving you ideas for how to do your Sabbath. So if you're, if you're interested in doing a, um, bringing the Sabbath into your family dynamic, there's a, that's a, Instagram is a great place to get those. Um, thank you guys so much for listening to this show. Once again, I just thank you so much, Mr. Pryor, for being on the show. It's been an honor to have you. Yeah. Um, like I said, it's really kind of a dream come true in the sense of I've been listening to you on other podcasts for years, and it's just great to actually talk to you face to face, get your input on my show, and um, broadcast that to all the all the young men listening to the show. So thank you so much. Absolutely. So yeah, this is a great interview. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. You're what you're so welcome. And remember guys, if you have not gotten a copy of my books yet, you can do so through Amazon. The titles are deep in the dance of dependence, prioritizing relationship amidst Gen Z individualism. And the other one is the ponderings of a homeschooler. You can get those on Amazon. Once again, I'll put the link in the show notes. Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time.